Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President here at the Atlanta Council. Uh, and I want to welcome all of you who are here in person and everybody who's following on the live webcast as well. All right. We're going to restart for the live webcast. Is there a problem? There seems to be a problem. No audio? Give me one, two, three. Bear with me one second, please, and we'll take care of this. While we care greatly about the people who are in the room for these audiences, we know how much larger the audience is online. So uh, give us a second to make sure it's set up right. All good? One, two, three. All right, let's start again. Welcome, everyone. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President here at the Atlanta Council. And I want to thank all of you for being with us here, those in the room, those who are watching and listening uh, via the live web webcast. It's my pleasure. Uh, to welcome you to today's launch of our latest futures paper, Europe in 2022. Um, first, just to set the record, we are on the record, and I will invite all of you who are following to join the conversation online or here in the room using the hashtag ACStrategy. Um, ACStrategy, because today's event is organized in part in conjunction with our Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security and our Future Europe Initiative. Um, this collaboration is part of what we call our Atlantic Council Strategy Paper Series, which has been uh, over a year-long effort to forge a series of nonpartisan uh, uh, strategies that are long-term strategies that can be sustainable for the United States and its allies and partners working on the most important global issues. Today's discussion, obviously, about Europe is taking uh, place against the backdrop of the 60th anniversary of the Rome Treaty, the predecessor of what we see in the European Union today. And we had a chance, even as we celebrated last night at Ambassador O'Sullivan's, uh, uh, celebrated the, this anniversary, um, we all woke to the news today of uh, the Theresa May submitting uh, her official letter triggering Article 50, beginning the formal process of the United Kingdom's negotiation to withdraw from the European Union. And so this couldn't be a more timely conversation against the backdrop of Brexit, migration issues, increasing Russian antagonism and terrorism across uh, the continent uh, in conjunction with economic, social, uh, security, and political issues that are roiling all of the great democracies of the West at this time. Um, and particularly testing the robustness of, of the European Union. It is clear that we are in a time of unprecedented uncertainty, and in fact, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, we're doing this as part of our work because we believe that the United States has an interest in a coherent, strategic, and strong Europe that can be a partner of first resort to the United States. Um, and after all, it has been U.S. strategy for 70, 75 years to support the integration of Europe as that partner that we've wanted. Um, one of the things we have our eye on is how to ensure the United States isn't among the forces of fragmentation facing Europe today. It's also really apparent over the weekend that despite some of these trends and some of the difficult negative trends that you'll see and hear from uh, our authors today, there's still so many people that actually believe in the power of the vision of the European project. And it was pretty remarkable to see people taking to the streets across Europe to celebrate the EU's birthday. Um, and when we travel as Atlantic Council delegations through the Balkans, through Europe's east, to see countries that still very, very much front and center put their aspirations to be part of the European Union at the top of their agenda. Um, and so such desires indicate that the EU still appeals to many. But how Europe responds to very serious uncertainties today at this critical juncture will determine its future. 
These decisions, of course, are going to be decisions for Europeans to make about their own future. And I think that's an important point that we want to underscore here at the Atlantic Council. And at the same time, from our perspective as, as many Americans, um, we have a profound interest in the outcome of these deliberations in Europe. So over the past several weeks, as part of this debate, we've hosted several European leaders here from Guy Verhofstadt, the European Parliament's chief Brexit negotiator, uh, the EU's top diplomat, Federica Mogherini, uh, to a slew. We had about five foreign ministers from the Balkans, from Italy here last week as well, all joining us on this stage to debate the future of Europe and to really express their firm commitment to the concept of the European project and the, the values that underpin it. And so the Council's proud to provide such a forum for important discussions and to consider how we strengthen the US-EU relationship by promoting positive international engagement, but recognizing the profound challenges in our institutional makeup that we have to address. Um, as most of you in this audience probably know, the European Commission recently published a white paper that highlighted five scenarios for the European continent in 2025. Um, should the union move towards further political integration or should it limit itself to the single market, a free market, an economic alliance, if you will. So these are some of the issues we're going to work through today and talk about that play out in our future scenario. And to kick off this discussion, I'm really delighted to welcome back to the Council a very special welcome to Ambassador David O'Sullivan, who of course is the Ambassador of the European Union here in Washington. Uh, Ambassador O'Sullivan is a great friend of the Council and has worked tirelessly to promote greater transatlantic cooperation and understanding during his tenure. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Um, I'm going to turn things over to the ambassador in just a moment to give some opening remarks, uh, after which we'll move into a conversation moderated by the Atlantic Council's Alina Poyakova with the co-authors of our futures study who are here with us, the Council's Matt Burroughs, who runs our strategy and strategic foresight shop, and Fran Burwell, who's been a longtime voice on the European Union here at the Council, as well as member of the European Parliament, Daniel Caspery, and Brookings expert, uh, Philippe Decor, who will be commentators on this issue as well. So with that, Mr. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Let me invite you to the stage and thank our authors for their report today. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Damon. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, a, a big thank you to the Atlantic Council for this initiative. Uh, in temporary non suspecto, uh, I'm not sure that the timing was as felicitous as you realized it would be. Uh, but uh, really, I'd like to thank the Atlantic Council for your very consistent support and work for transatlantic relations and on promoting a better understanding of European issues uh, here in Washington. You had your Eurogrowth initiative, which was a fantastic report, and now we have today's report, uh, which uh, is extremely interesting. I'd like to thank Matt and Fran very warmly. Um, I'm a big fan of both of them for different reasons. I knew Bat, Matt from his time at the National Intelligence Council and his Mega Trends paper, uh, which we tried to mimic or mimic, imitate, imitate the, the, the highest form of flattery uh, in, with our ESPAS uh, paper in, in Europe at the initiative, in fact, of the European Parliament and Klaus Weller, the Secretary General, uh, to look at the, 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 the big trends going forward. And I see 
uh, traces of that in, in, in this report, which, is, uh, uh, which I'll come back to in a moment. And of course, Fran, who's a great friend of Europe, knows, I think, the European Union better than many of us who've worked there, uh, and who better to put together than these two people to produce this very interesting report. And uh, I, I think it's great. I read it with, with great interest. I don't agree with everything, but that's not the point. The point is to stimulate discussion, to provide a framework, uh, and I think they, they, they do a great job. Frankly, it's rather more interesting than some of these kind of reports I've had to write myself from time to time in my official capacity, but I think that's entirely due to the fact that they have greater latitude uh, than I've ever had as a, as a public servant. Um, of course, as, as Damon has said, uh, today is the day when uh, Article 50 uh, for Brexit has been, been triggered. Um, I, I have nothing really to, to say about that except for me, it's hard to describe the, the degree of sadness that I feel on this occasion. Uh, the United Kingdom joined uh, the European Union with, with Ireland and Denmark, or maybe Ireland and Denmark joined with the UK, uh, depending on how you like to interpret history. Um, and it, <clears throat> the UK, I think, has contributed enormously to the development of the European Union as it has become the European Economic Community as it was. I like to think that uh, membership of the European Union did great benefits for, for, the Europe, for the UK. Certainly when I look at their economic performance today compared to what it was in 1973, they have followed the pattern of every single uh, member country of the European Union in uh, improving significantly their economic performance as a result of joining the European Union. Uh, and of course, as an Irishman, uh, I can't help but make the personal observation that joint membership of the European Union produced a new definition of the relationship between Ireland and, and the UK, which, as you know, uh, has had its problems in the past uh, and was very instrumental in permitting the, the resolution of the problems in Northern Ireland. Uh, I just hope that today's decision and the consequences will not uh, have too big a, a negative impact on, on all of that and that we can go forward uh, uh, in, in the most constructive way possible. But it is for me a day of enormous sadness that the people of the United Kingdom have decided not to link their dis destiny with the rest of the continent in, in the way that they had. Uh, the process I'm not going to go into. Uh, the European Council will respond, adopt guidelines, and eventually a negotiating mandate, and the negotiations will start uh, probably uh, in May. Uh, and then we will have the two-year time frame in which to try to sort out the uh, exit of the UK uh, and at least the beginnings of what a new relationship will look like. Um, is this going to trigger a sort of uh, change, uh, you know, a domino effect for the rest of Europe? Uh, most unlikely. Uh, frankly, I think it's more like the Joni Mitchell line, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Uh, I think, if anything, uh, the debate around Brexit has strengthened support for the European Union elsewhere in the European Union. Uh, Damon mentioned uh, the unusual phenomenon of people actually protesting on the streets in, in favor of Europe. Uh, and I think, if anything, it has joined the rest of us more closely together, and I'm quite sure that the, the 27 are going to want to continue uh, with the uh, process of integration. And that brings me maybe to this theme of the future of Europe. I sometimes, when I hear that phrase, uh, and to be honest with you, it, I think I've been dealing with the question of the future of Europe professionally for about 20 years. Uh, uh, I certainly well remember um, Joschka Fischer's famous uh, speech at the Humboldt University in 99, when he set out the, uh, uh, his ideas for the future development of Europe. And since then, we've had the Nice debate over the Nice Treaty. We've had the debate over the Constitution, the Lisbon Treaty. Um, and there have been many, many discussions about the future of Europe. My standing joke line was to say, whenever anyone wants to have this discussion, I'm just delighted that they think Europe has a future. So it's a, uh, an excellent start for the debate. But more seriously, I, I think that 
the celebrations around the 60th anniversary uh, of the signing of the Treaty of Rome have provided us with the basis of realizing just how much we have achieved uh, and what has been built. And maybe we don't communicate that as well as we should. Maybe national politicians don't like to attribute all of the benefits which flow from European integration to European integration or to the European institutions, because maybe it's better to imply that it came from national activities and national policies. And maybe sometimes there's a temptation, if there are some negatives, to say that that was the result of Brussels and not the result of national decisions. And maybe a combination of this has left our citizens with the impression that, as a general rule, good things come from national policies and bad things come from Brussels. Uh, and I think this is something which needs to be addressed. Uh, uh, and, but I am very grateful for the outpouring, and I use that word consciously, of support for European integration and for uh, what we have achieved from our American colleagues, from uh, congratulations from the White House to uh, a wonderful resolution put forward by Senators Shaheen and McCain in the Senate, which we hope will be adopted in the next few weeks, uh, all of which recognizing uh, the achievements of Europe the importance that this has for transatlantic relations. And I would like to say, recognizing also the very much the role that America has played in those developments. Uh, America has been a partner, a friend, and an ally throughout that period. This is uh, not just the 60th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Rome. It's the 65th anniversary of diplomatic relations between uh, the European Union and the United States. It's the 70th anniversary of George Marshall's seminal speech, uh, uh, which launched the Marshall Plan. Uh, and it's the 100th anniversary of America's entry into the First World War, which was the first, but unfortunately not the last time, that American servicemen and women had to give their lives uh, in defense of, of freedom and democracy in Europe. Uh, and this is what ties us together. And when you go back and you read George Marshall's speech, which I did the other day, and it has the great merit not only of being a very brilliant speech, but also being very short, which is a virtue for all speeches, you will tell me, as I should probably bring my remarks to a conclusion. Uh, but what he describes is the abject state to which Europe was reduced in, in 1945 after two world wars and the Holocaust. Uh, we talk today about a refugee crisis, but we forget how many displaced German refugees there were in the aftermath of that war. And Germany, in recent times, has had to deal with many refugees coming from Syria. They also had to deal with, in, in, in the, the aftermath of the war, uh, 10 to 15 million refugees returning from uh, other countries. And that's only one vignette, if you like, of, of the tragedy of the rubble to which Europe was reduced and how we had to rebuild and how we had to uh, find a better way, a, a way to build better, a better history, as President Obama once said, of this country. Uh, and we were able to do that with strong American support. And when we look back on those achievements, uh, I think we hope we will be able to look forward to Ameri continued American support going forward, because you are a part of the story of European integration and of building a transatlantic community of values, of liberal, economy, li liberal economies and, and the rule of law. And I think the scenarios which are sketched out, uh, I could tell you my preference, I could tell you which one I think is more likely, but I just want to say one thing. I remain remarkably optimistic about the future of Europe, about the future of the European Union. Uh, I have heard so many times people predict disaster, people predict failure. 
And each time we have defied those predictions because we are driven by a strong desire to build a better future for our people and to make Europe a force for good in the world. I think we have done that in, in the last uh, 60 years, and I believe we will find ways of continuing to do that in the future, notwithstanding the many challenges, and there are challenges. But on the other hand, when you travel to Europe, and if you visit Europe, it's actually a pretty good place to live. It has a quality of life unrivaled. Uh, and we have achieved all of this uh, through the process which we have just been through. So I think we should not be uh, insensitive or complacent about the challenges we face, but we should also have the optimism and the confidence to believe that what has brought us to this point can also take us forward into the future. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for those uh, sobering and also inspiring words. If I could ask our panel to go ahead and come up and join me here on stage. <laughs> I'm Alina Polyakova. I'm the Director of Research for Europe and Eurasia here at the Atlantic Council, and it's really my pleasure to moderate this very distinguished panel today on this uh, important and incredibly timely topic. And again, I don't think that we meant to time it on this particular Brexit Day occasion, but uh, here we are. And I'm sure that's a topic that we will come back to. So I'll just briefly introduce our, our panelists, and then we'll have a discussion. And then we'll open up uh, to the rest of you at the end, because we're very keen to hear your thoughts on our conversation. Also, those of you who have had the chance to skim the report, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So uh, all the way at the end, but certainly not least, is of course uh, Fran Burwell, one of the authors of the report and a distinguished fellow here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, I think the ambassador already did a wonderful job introducing you, Fran. Thanks for joining us. And next to uh, Fran, we have uh, Mr. Philippe Lecarne. I'm sorry, are you not a French speaker? So please That's feel free fine. to correct me. Uh, he's the visiting fellow for foreign policy at the Center of the United States in Europe at the Brookings Institution. Uh, in addition to studying France and the future of Europe, uh, he is also an expert on China, which will come up, I think, as well. Uh, you cannot have discussions about the future of anything these days without talking about the future of China and what kind of challenges the rise of China poses uh, to not just Europe, but uh, to the United States and other countries. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, and then, of course, we have the co-author, along with Fran, uh, of the report, uh, Dr. Matt Burroughs, uh, who is the director of the Atlantic Council Strategy, Foresight, and Risk Initiative in the Brent Skokoff Center on International Security here at the Atlantic Council. Matt comes to us directly from the National Intelligence Council, has also served for many years uh, in the Central Intelligence Agency before. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, and last, but again, certainly not least, uh, we have a guest joining us from Germany, just in town for a couple of days, I understand, uh, Mr. Daniel Kaspari, who is a member of the European Parliament, German politician uh, for Baden-Württemberg, and member of the Christian Democratic Union Party, uh, part of the European People's Party in the European Parliament. So thank you so much for coming and joining us for this event as well. So. Uh, Matt, I want to start the conversation off with you. You're one of the co-authors of this uh, report that tries to look at potential scenarios in Europe in the very short term, just five years. Uh, as you say in the report, three of the five scenarios that you and Fran describe 
represent a really stark departure from the normal, if we can put that in quotation marks. Uh, but could you start us off by very briefly describing those five scenarios uh, and just what they are so the audience knows what we're talking about? So the, the purpose always of doing scenarios is to look at the different um, factors that, you, that the rest of the publication talks about, and these are the important drivers of the future, and then to think about how they may interact um, and coalesce in some cases with, with one another. And so we have a couple of scenarios that look at high growth, low growth scenarios. So those would, the uh, higher growth is the most optimistic of the five scenarios. And that looks at if you can uh, undertake structural reforms, get global growth or uh, get growth up to about two to three percent in the case of Europe um, you know, um, as a whole. Um, then you can be, rebuild trust in government. Um, you can also begin to develop more cooperation. Um, but nevertheless, we still build into this scenario some subdivisions so you could see the multi-speed or the multiple geometry points where certain countries, particularly the ones with the, who provide the heavy security lift, get together and and provide much more security and defense cooperation. Um, throughout all the five scenarios, the one issue and we, you know, which we talk about a lot are the security problems, which I think are relatively new um, in the last decade or so to Europe. So low uh, growth is the obverse, and you get basically much more differences between core and uh, periphery. You get a lot more distrust of the big countries, particularly Germany in that, in that scenario. Um, you don't have, you have cooperation still, um, but nevertheless it's bilaterally. It's also countries being very opportunistic in terms of foreign policy. So you don't see the strides in terms of common security defense policy in that scenario. The third one is the, the the bad scenario, you'd say. This is the nationalistic <laughs> scenario. But one of the things that we were conscious of building in, and it's very, you know, as you build these scenarios, you have to think about the dynamics. So you have a Le Pen victory in this scenario. Um, but, you know, and you have a Le Pen who wants to take France out of the euro um, and cr would create, no doubt, economic chaos in France, so what's the reaction of other countries that actually see, <laughs> look at France and, and say they don't want to follow that, and you have basically in other parts of um, Europe a reaction against that populism um, in France. But it doesn't lead particularly to any increased unity. You have huge divisions between countries that have gone down, much more the French uh, path, we have the Dutch as well, um, becoming much more leery of, of the EU and others who, who want to stay away from that, but um, you can't really build a Europe around them. And then the two final scenarios look at, um, one looking at increased Russian aggression, the other looking at uh, a US withdrawal. Um, so, in many ways, these are the security, um, geopolitic scenarios. Um, 
Obviously, the, the Russian aggression pre presents a new challenge. You have divisions open up within mm -hmm. Europe over how to deal with, with um, a, a much more assertive and aggressive uh, Russia. In the US case, you have some cooperation among the, the big three as a, um, as a way to offset some of the withdrawal of the, of the US security um, umbrella. Uh, but nevertheless, these are, I think, uh, both these are of a Europe that's rather struggling to stay together um, in the face of these, these ongoing uh, geopolitical threats. Again, you know, just to emphasize, scenarios aren't necessarily predictive, and why you put them together is to bring up issues to policymakers and decision makers um, so that you avoid the good ones and you actually steer much towards the positive ones. And I think that's important to keep in mind that we're not making predictions here, but I might ask you to make a prediction at the end of this panel anyways. <laughs> okay. uh, but I wanted to, to ask you in a bit more detail, you know, why choose this particular time frame? Why the, the five years? Uh, you've written reports that look at the very further future. The EU report that Ambassador Sullivan mentioned uh, looked at 2025. So, you know, why choose this particular time frame? What advantage did that give you? Well. I think this is a little bit different than what the ambassador was talking about. I mean, I think Fran and I both saw Europe at a crossroads. So you can actually see, you know, 60 years since the, the Treaty of Roma, in many ways Europe was following that plan, blueprint, you could say, of um, much more unity. Obviously enlargement was a big part of that in the last few decades. Um, and they had some ups and downs, but nevertheless, there seemed to be that always vision of ever closer union. Um, and I think you actually have now other visions. Um, obviously, the one that Britain has presented of, of a country that doesn't want to be in that union. Um, but other populist um, political forces who don't believe in, the, in, in Europe and don't believe that it is brought um, you know, the, the economic um, or the uh, Europe that has actually undermined sovereignty um, instead of enhanced sovereignty, um, so that there is another vision, uh, one which doesn't involve the, the European Union. So it was, if you're going to think about 20 years, I mean, it was going to be very hard to write that um, if you don't didn't really know where those that direction was going to be after, I think, particularly this year when you have a lot of elections. Obviously, some of the trends there with that most of the publication deals with the broader political, economic, social uh, trends, those would, you know, in some ways remain something that you could think about for the longer term mm -hmm. future. Uh, but in the short term, I think we really do have a, a year of decision in, in 2017. Absolutely, and I think all of us here in this room agree that 2017 especially is going to be a critical year for, for Europe. Uh, Fran, I want to uh, pull you into this as well. Uh, what struck me uh, when I read the report were, were two things. I'm going to ask you about both of them, but uh, the first was that many of the drivers and the scenarios that uh, you and Matt described could take place concurrently or even be causally related. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, uh, U.S. disengagement from, from Europe, 
could set a path uh, for Russia launching an offensive, say, in the Balkans or even potentially the Baltics. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts um, in this report. Um, how do you see these scenarios, these drivers fitting together? Um, is there a causal thinking to this at all or, or not? I think that just like in real life, it's often hard to figure out what is coincidence and what is causal. Uh, I think as well that the scenarios are really a thought experiment. So they are to take out certain elements and to s drive them a little bit forward and see what might happen, especially in this, what would be realistic in this five-year time frame, so that you can't just make up things out of whole cloth. You have to deal basically with some elements that are already there. There can, of course, be something that comes out of the blue. But I think that most of the things that we have looked at and hypothesized that might happen um, are things that we can all say today are possibilities. Um, so we started from having Europe at a particular place today where it is shrinking in terms of its ownership of global assets, whether that's population or money. Uh, and what will be the impact of that in the next five years when that becomes very clear and apparent? Um, the impact of the migration crisis uh, and the return of geopolitics to Europe. Uh, Ambassador Sullivan is right that Europe has an extremely high standard of living. And until about 2009 or so, it felt like it was in a very secure place as well. And between terrorism, Russia, and instability to the south, those days seem to be gone. Um, and then we looked at some internal variables, uh, nationalism, the British, uh, and uh, whether there would be economic reform, and brought those together with external variables, uh, US disengagement, Russia, but also Turkey, and also the future of the Balkans, mm -hmm. and whether they would again become a, an issue in terms of security. And I think we ended up with these four, I would say there's, you always have to have the good scenario, the things that go forward uh, in a positive light. And then we picked the things that could be troublesome. Persistent low growth uh, and uh, Russia, nationalism, and the United States really truly disengaging. And the one that we didn't pick, although we had a lot of discussions about it, was Brexit. <coughs> Because as we went through this process, having started this paper before June, um, it became very clear that Brexit was happening. And Brexit is a constant in all of these, uh, in all of the scenarios. There are some wild cards with that. We don't know if Brexit could conceivably lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. But I think that when we look at the continent of Europe, what you're seeing right now in response to Brexit is some coming together, at least for the moment. We still have the actual divorce negotiations to go through. It'd be interesting to see if the European family stays on one side uh, of the table. And we also have not figured out yet, or don't know the impact of, the British withdrawal of its funds from the EU budget, exactly where that will hit, how big it will be when you balance it with the payments to the UK, and whether internal uh, disagreements in Europe may spill over into how to divide a somewhat smaller pie uh, in the budget. So there are a whole lot of issues with Brexit, but we didn't do one specifically for them because I think those issues are constant which, with, with whichever scenario you use. But we can certainly be contested on that. Um, I wanted to just 
you know, are they, are they interconnected? Certainly. And I think one reason, for example, we wrote the Russian aggression one, which is the features a, a, a push towards Mariupol and Mariupol falls. Um, so it's, a, it's not a against NATO, no NATO member state, but it's a, what we think is a realistic possibility. Um, and then right after that, you have to ask yourself, well, if the US disengages and you still have a Russia that might be inclined that way, what would Europe do? Right. And I think the reality is, especially given proximity, Europe would have to find a way to accommodate. And so I think we found ourselves saying that with no US, there would have to be some kind of deal. As described in the scenario, it is that Russia gets out of Ukraine, but there's an arrangement so that Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, and Georgia cannot be EU members and presumably not NATO members, although that's not official. So I think you know that's a long way away. It's a what if of a what if. But I think you have to, when you look at the scenarios, you say to yourself, if you want to avoid this really nasty one, how does Europe do that? Um, I wanted just to make a couple of comments generally about it. And that is that what we saw in the scenarios and throughout our analysis, I think, is that these, these different developments all affect Europe. And the question is, do they lead to cohesion or disunity? That's really one of the biggest questions. And what I've seen in looking at these is that external pressures lead to cohesion. So if you have Russia, US disengagement, et cetera, those Turkey, those types of things lead to more cohesion. Internal disagreements over migration, internal politics, uh, such as we're seeing the uh, discussions between the Commission and Poland, these lead to less cohesion. So I think that's one way of thinking about what the future might bring. And it opens the door for more cooperation in foreign policy, defense, anti-terrorism, foreign assistance, things of that sort, um, energy security. But perhaps the way forward in the next couple of years is not uh, to push to resolve some of the really hardcore domestic disputes. So um, one last point is that we asked some, ex some European colleagues to react to our scenarios. And I would say that um, although their reactions are different and they reflect the political spectrum in, in Europe, one thing that they all highlighted, perhaps because it was an American think tank, is the role of the United States and the importance of the United States staying engaged with Europe as a stabilizing factor. So let me finish there. Thank you, Fran. Uh, that was a really interesting summary. I also appreciated hearing about the scenarios you didn't choose. It's always an uh, interesting background for the finished product that we see. But I think what's also interesting, this is the second thing that struck me in Matt or Fran, whichever one of you wants to answer this, so it seems to me that four out of five of the scenarios you describe lead to some sort of two-speed yeah. uh, mm -hmm. outcome. Uh, so if four out of five lead to that, is that really where we're headed? Um, in, in the EU, some sort of bifurcated or trifurcated structure, if that's a word. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I actually do think that is likely. The most likely future is some kind of variable geometry. Um, you can call it, the Euro Growth Report calls it concentric circles. There are different ways to describe it, but I think the idea is that different countries will be more keen on 
preserving elements of the union. And even when you have one of our most pessimistic scenarios, which I think is the nationalist scenario where France actually does withdraw from the euro, which I think is a pretty high stretch, but if it does actually happen, I don't think it necessarily leads to the dissolution of the euro, but it may lead to a rump eurozone cluster, you know, with those who can survive holding on to the euro. So I think it depends on the circumstances, but I think we probably will see variable geometry, and the big political issue is, will others be excluded, or will they be able to join when they feel ready? Yeah, and so you see that bifurcation happening along the economic axis mm -hmm. primarily. And Matt, do you, do you agree with that? Yes, I, 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 you know, the one interesting aspect, and it kind of came out of just looking at each of the different scenarios, is that you'll notice in each of them there's, or at least in almost all of them, there is this building of defense and security cooperation, which obviously doesn't happen necessarily under the EU umbrella, but is, is there because as both Fran and I have talked about, there is this growing security threat um, from a lot of different directions in Europe. So, uh, you know, it, it's hard to see how that would be um, brought into the EU, but uh, nevertheless, I think it's something that, uh, you know, Europeans will actually innovate on. And it, in the British case, I think they may want to actually, you know, renew their ties through the security mm -hmm. um, uh, after Brexit. So I think there's, you know, one kind of new um, wrinkle um, in thinking about Europe, something that we haven't really thought about since the end of the Cold mm -hmm. War when there's obviously a lot more ambitious ideas about a defense cooperation. And so we've been talking a lot about Europe, obviously, and I want to bring in our European colleagues. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so, Daniel, uh, you've been a member of the European Parliament since 2004. So I think you've really been at the heart, uh, the sort of the inside view of all the incredible shocks that the EU has had to deal with uh, since that time. Uh, the economic crisis, the refugee crisis, the increasing popularity uh, of far-right populists who style themselves as anti-EU parties, yet participate very actively in the European Parliament nonetheless. Uh, so many have said that the EU has um, muddle through these crises, and that political leaders are not ready to confront the real and painful reforms that are needed for a revitalized Europe, which is one of the scenarios, the positive scenario described in this report. So, I mean, how does this all, all these machinations, the, the crises, the management of the crises, how does it look from your perspective in the European Parliament? Um, do you think there's growing political will now for those painful reforms? So first of all, my question is, uh, did we really muddle through? Uh, I, frankly speaking, uh, very dislike uh, this uh, wording. Um, first of all, we are celebrating 60 years of European uh, integration. And uh, I think uh, all in all, it's a very good success story, uh, bringing together today 28 uh, European member states, uh, integrating Central and Eastern European former communist dictatorships, um, I'm guaranteeing stability for the citizens in the European Union, uh, I think it is a success story. The next thing is we can see the Brexit debate from two positions. Of course, I'm uh, very disappointed that Great Britain uh, is going to leave the European Union, and I'm, 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 I'm quite interested in how this Brexit in the end will really end up. 
Um, so how, 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 how real will be this Brexit in the end? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, as an as a optimist, again, I, I preferred the Britons to stay in the European Union. Uh, but, but we are now losing the member state, which blocked us very often, which kept us from further integration, which uh, denied a lot of European uh, projects and didn't want to be really on board in a lot of areas, the, the joint um, currency, for instance, yes. they didn't want to be on board, uh, the free movement of people like Schengen, uh, that uh, the removal of the border controls within the European Union, they didn't want to be part. Um, I know so many projects where they hindered us, stopped us, blocked us. Um, Brexit is a disaster. But Brexit is also a very great chance uh, for the European Union to develop uh, quicker uh, and to, to, to deepen our integration. And therefore, um, as an optimist, um, I want to definitely focus on the chances. Um, and yes, we have to do all those negotiations now during the next two years. Um, and, and it won't uh, be done within two years. It will take longer. Mm -hmm. um, uh, imagine a cake which you now want to separate again into the in, in ingredients. It, it's, it's nearly impossible. That's the task we now have to do. So, but, but when I see the, the issues you just spoke about, for instance, uh, take the euro crisis. Mm -hmm. um, the European member states decided that the European Union should invent our joint currency. So de facto, we only gave the allowance to the European Union to print euro bills and to press euro coins. But no one gave the European Union the possibility to, um, let's say, deal with those member states who don't keep to the rules, who don't uh, keep to the stability pact, uh, who don't do their homeworks. We didn't have any possibility to, uh, yeah, to, to, to do the second, third, fourth mm -hmm. steps, which, which is necessary if you have the allowance or the possibility to, to print your currency. So, and I think the main reason for most of the problems we are in now is not that we have the single currency, but the main problem we are in now is that the member state didn't give enough competence to the European Union really to successfully deliver what you have to deliver if you have a joint currency. Or it's the same with the refugee crisis. So, of course, the refugee crisis has uh, different uh, backgrounds and different reasons. But one of the problems we faced within the European Union was the fact that we have the so-called Schengen Agreement, the free movement of people within the European Schengen area without border controls. That means for a member state like mine in Germany, we only have borders at our airports. So when I come back later today, then I have to pass a border control at Frankfurt Airport. Or we have border controls to Switzerland, which is not a member of the European Union. So de facto with Schengen, we yeah, um, we, we, we moved our German border, our German external border, to the external border of the European Union. So, which is great. People love it. Free traveling. You can go to holiday without any border control. Um, uh, the businesses are benefiting from this. But the second step, the member states didn't do. And the second step is if you, of course, move your German border or the French border or the Spanish border to the European border, then you have to put the European authorities in a, in, a, in a condition that they are able to protect then our joint European border. So, and the problem is, no one did this. And so the refugee crisis, of course, again, the origins are broadly. But one of the problems we faced within the European Union was the fact that one member state, Greece, didn't do any border controls. 
And we Germans and others, we then had the possibility either to force the Greek to do it, what they didn't like, or to think about introducing mm -hmm. new border controls between Germany and Austria and Germany and Hungary, what we didn't want to do. And therefore, I think Gen Chancellor Merkel did a very great job, even if now we have some problems. But, but again, the message I want to pass is we either can disintegrate the European Union, yes, but I think most of the concerns people have and most of the areas where the citizens in Europe are unhappy can also be solved by a deeper integration. And that is what we can see now uh, after this Brexit debate. We see that a lot of citizens start realizing that the European Union has a great benefit, that perhaps more integration could deliver better answers to a lot of those joint problems. And therefore, I'm quite optimistic. And that is the development I saw at least during the last 12 months. Of course, not all those problems are solved. But talking about our currency, the euro, we saw a lot of steps going forward, not backwards. Um, talking about refugee crisis and border controls, we saw a lot of steps going forward and not backward. And I see uh, for the future, sometimes the Americans and the United States help us by being engaged in Europe. But sometimes the United States also help us by electing a new president, which is an interesting example for many Europeans, what they perhaps should avoid. And, um, and therefore, um, also, uh, the United States may help us in the upcoming elections this year, thinking about just big countries like France or Germany. So not to oversimplify the message yeah. you're trying to get across, <laughs> but is, you're, is basically where you're saying that the answer is not less Europe, it's more Europe. And if that's what you're saying, how do you sell that to the European people um, even though there have been, I think recently there have been some polls showing a, a resurgence in pro-European uh, attitudes, but overall, if we look over time, there's been a pretty profound decline in people's opinions of the EU, mm -hmm. whether they think the EU is a good thing. Uh, so how do you sell that message to constituents? Yeah, again, as an optimist, uh, let me draw some pictures. The first picture is you can see that the younger the Europeans are, the more they are in favor of Europe because that's most of the younger generation, they are Europeans. They enjoy free movement of people. They enjoy traveling abroad without border controls. They enjoy our Erasmus program that you can do your studies in a foreign country, uh, that you can take a job in another country. So, and if you see the Brexit vote in the UK, for instance, it was the older generation, the gray men, who voted in favor of Brexit, and the younger generation who was in, against Brexit didn't go to vote. So um, the younger generation now knows that that was a mistake. So I'm optimistic. The younger generation wants to have more Europe. The second thing is, after the Brexit debate, in all member states, after the Brexit decision, in all member states, the um, pro-EU um, movement became stronger. And also the opinion polls in favor of Europe became stronger because some people now realize that this Brexit is a mess and that they don't want to have this mess for their own member state. And the third thing is, um, if, if, if we take our European, yeah, the situation with the younger generation especially, um, if, if, if you make an, if you make an opinion poll throughout Europe, you can see that some two-thirds of the Europeans say the European Union is engaged in too many issues. We don't want to have Europe engaging in all different areas. That's one part. But the second part is if you ask the same people about concrete
poli mm -hmm. policy areas. Also, two-thirds of the Europeans say we need more Europe when we talk about the joint currency, we need more Europe when we talk about economic policy, we need more Europe when we talk about fighting terrorism, we need more Europe when we talk about a joint um, a European foreign and security policy, we need more Europe in fighting climate change, we need more Europe uh, for um, um, our uh, relationship with Russia, we need more Europe for um, the climate change issue, we need more um, Europe for um, uh, environmental policy. It's, it's quite strange. Again, the same Europeans, two-thirds, say Europe should not engage in all those issues. Mm -hmm. But in the same opinion poll, two-thirds say if you ask them for concrete policy areas, we need more Europe in this area. So that I think is, what those opinion polls show, if I may interrupt yeah. for a moment, is that people are quite divided. No, they are not They are not divided. Let's say they are kind of, uh, in, in, in Germany, we would say they are kind of uh, schizophren. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I don't know how you say it in English, but... Um, and, and, and that, is, that is the question is always the political leadership, do you support one part of the picture or do yeah. you support the other part of the picture? And I see more and more political leaders who after the Brexit decision now uh, see the focus on the second part. I'm going to compl complicate your optimistic picture with a, with a drop of, of pessimism uh, about, about the young generation, uh, which is that, yes, you're right, young people, of course, are more, more pro-European than older generations. But even among uh, younger people, many of them have been unemployed for 10 years. Uh, mm -hmm. If we look at places like su Southern Europe, especially Greece, uh, Portugal, Spain, Italy, numbers are going up. But still, I mean, it's been almost 10 years since the economic crisis and the youth unemployment rates are stubbornly high. And uh, young people are in greater proportions now voting for populist, nationalist, far-right parties than they used to. So they're still underrepresented but many of them seem to be signaling that they're not happy with the centrist solutions of, of more Europe. Uh, so I'll just put that out there but I, and let you think about it, but I want to bring in Philippe because... Yeah, yeah, but, but just this point. Okay. We see youth unemployment, which is a big issue. But economic policy is not a responsibility of the European institutions. It's a responsibility of the member states. And that is something, uh, I think, uh, you said it in, in your remarks, um, if something no, uh, the ambassador said it. If if some if some if something goes well in Europe, no. it was the member states, and if something goes wrong, it's the European level. And this blaming and shaming has to stop. And also, that is one of the messages after Brexit. You see more and more, not all, but more and more heads of states who realize that they also have to take over responsibility if things don't don't work well. And youth youth unemployment is a national issue. Okay. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Uh, Philippe, you've been very patient. I've been saving you for last. Uh, France, I think, um, is on many people's minds um, as we go into the, the next major elections uh, in, in Europe. Um, so I want to start getting, getting your thoughts on the conversation that we're starting here about, uh, you know, is France going to be the key problem uh, for the EU uh, in the next few years? I'm not asking you to predict who's going to win, uh, but I do think that there is a reality that uh, a Le Pen presidency is a possibility. Uh, the French ambassador recently called that possibility a total disaster. The French ambassador He's a very the United States. Ambassador. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so this idea of, of nationalists in charge potentially being more and more supported by young people as well, not just the, the usual, I, I guess, you know, working class, lower middle class, older people who tend to be more conservative. Um, you know, but. Let's take the hypothetical, Le Pen wins. 
uh, in the scenarios described that uh, throws France into economic decline. Um, you know, but I wonder, will she actually be able to cause as much damage as, as we fear she'd be able to cause? So just your thoughts on that. Well, before I answer that, let's talk about the election for, for a second. Um, because we have a situation where um, none of the traditional parties are actually uh, in the running anymore, or at least they, they, are, they have been uh, overtaken by uh, non-traditional parties. Uh, and, and the two uh, uh, likely uh, uh, finalists for this election, which has uh, the amazing number of 11 candidates for round number one, are the National Front candidates you described, and, and a man called Emmanuel Macron, some of you may have heard of, uh, who is a centrist, um, used to work for uh, the socialist government, but uh, who is uh, uh, everything uh, the European Union likes. Um, so you basically have uh, two very different uh, scenarios here, and you know, maybe we could add one scenario, uh, Macron in, as president. But, um, you know, we have um, a, yeah, a couple winning. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> things have shifted so much for the past uh, few weeks now. Uh, the mainstream candidate, who was basically France's president in waiting, is now, uh, you know, a, a, a third distant and, uh, you know, has literally uh, no chance now to make it to the second round, Francois Fillon. Um, so I, I think it, it's a very interesting situation that, you know, the, the, the right-wing candidate, who in a way was also a little bit different for a start because it was more into sort of the domestic um, um, situation of France. He wasn't a very pro-European conservative. He was, was reasonably pro-EU, but not, not that much, um, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, Le Pen uh, is, uh, I mean, she, she has not said she would quits the EU, but she has said she would take uh, France out of the Eurozone. Uh, and of course, that would be the, the reason for uh, the economic catastrophe uh, um, you've, you've described. Now, th the problem with that is, first, um, um, there's no pool, not one pool, that says that she will win. Uh, in, in the second round. In the second round. Uh, but almost everybody says she'll be in the second round. Um, and then secondly, um, uh, we talked a lot about Brexit today, and you know, perhaps there's a reason for that. Um, uh, but um, after the referendum, a lot of us looked at uh, polls. There were a number of surveys about the French electorate. And in fact, you know, the um, um, scenario of a Frexit is not at all uh, 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 readable in, 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 in those pools in, in France, because in fact, the vast majority of the French people do, do want to stay in the EU. So, I mean, you know, they, I, I, I mean, it's possible that Mrs. Le Pen would be elected, but, but then she would go against the will of the majority of the French people who actually do want to stay in the EU. Having said that, they do have, uh, you know, um, second thoughts about, <laughs> about the EU. Um, uh, in, in a way, uh, I mean, I think the EU should, should really uh, not pretend to be a political bloc anymore. Uh, and I do believe, you know, where, where Macron is interesting is that he is uh, advocating um, um, a two-speed Europe. 
uh, and he's talking to the German leadership about that. Uh, whether I mean the two candidates, he's been talking to to them to the to the the, the chancery. Um, and you know, I, I think we're really heading that way. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, again, you have on one hand a pro-European, pro-business young man who is rather in favor of keeping the EU, but making it more efficient, more powerful as a smaller group. Um, I mean, as a sort of you know, concentric, how do you say that? Concentric circles. Concentric circles. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have the sort of um, Somebody yesterday was talking about um, Downtown Abbey, uh, a return to Downtown Abbey scenario uh, with Marine Le Pen. Uh, um, it was Dominique Moisey, I should give his name really. It was a funny one. Um, but uh, basically, you know, uh, you know, closing the borders, uh, and then uh, also there's the Russia equation, which, which we, we, you know, we, could, we could mention, but, but Macron is certainly not uh, the one that's going to compromise with Russia. So, but again. Um, so, if she's elected. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> as I said, I mean, I, I think uh, for she she will start the process uh, of of uh, leading the the euro. I think she, her team's her economic team uh, is 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 really a, a very very low caliber, and I, I I doubt very much they 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 know how to do this. Uh, and secondly, on the EU, they, the, the idea is that she was going to, to talk to the EU institutions uh, and to see whether um, uh, you know, <laughs> there was a need for a referendum or not. But uh, on, on the euro, uh, I think she, she would uh, go for it. But you know, I mean, bear in mind that uh, once the president is elected, just like here, there's something called the parliament, and the parliament has a big role to play. I mean, you know, there's another election coming up in June. And, and, and once the president is elected, he or she needs a majority in parliament. So, I mean, and the and chance for the her... elections go the opposite of Well, the exactly. I mean, the chance for her to win a majority of the National Assembly is literally nil. Right. It's impossible. I mean, there's, I can't see 51% of the French people voting. I mean, you know, putting in place... I mean, this, this would be going back to the Vichy states. I mean, I don't think, you know, the French people are... Like that. I mean, so is, is this scenario, let's say, if Le Pen wins, not a complete disaster where she, because she'll be highly constrained, as you said, uh, but a sort of political paralysis? Well, I mean, that, that it's actually a, a possibility on both, uh, on both cases, on both uh, candidates, mm -hmm. unfortunately, because Macron doesn't really have a party. I mean, he's got a movement, so he, he's got 200,000 members, so it's not, not bad for, for a startup. But um, he doesn't have a majority in parliament. And whether he will have one uh, in, in upcoming uh, National Assembly elections, nobody knows, because it's just a very new thing. Um, so um, it, it, you know, we're facing a fairly complex and, uh, and um, uh, difficult to predict uh, situation uh, domestically. So I want to ask all of you one question, and I want to turn it over to the audience for, for questions. Uh, if you had to identify one key challenge in the next year, so not even the five years, in the next year, that's going to be the wedge um, facing the European Union. We talked about the refugee crisis. We talked about the Penguin. Uh, we talked about economic stagnation, uh, a major terrorist attack. And what would be the most likely event uh, that would be that driving wedge, more refugees, another million refugees coming to Europe, 
for, for each of you, if you just pick one key challenge that you think will be that key challenge over the next year. Daniel? Frankly speaking, after the challenges we saw in the past, economic crisis, refugee crisis, we survived all of them. I don't see any which may come. <laughs> so you will, uh, the EU will survive all the Penguin? It's, I don't see uh, Le Pen winning, and uh, even uh, the European Union will survive Le Pen. Yes. Fair enough. Fran? Uh, I agree with that. I don't think Le, uh, Le Pen is going to win. Um, and I think she'll be boxed in if she does. But I think the biggest challenge for Europe right now is what happens here. And as Europe's own share of global assets shrinks, as is ours, because of the rise of other countries, um, Will Europe step up to the plate if the United States abandons its leadership role? And what will be the impact on Europe if we alternatively seem to pull back, but then also seem to be more aggressive in certain ways, such as removing some of the um, rules that are in place to prevent mm -hmm. uh, civilian casualties, which is not going to play well in the European press. We'll have a repeat of the Iraq War of 2002, 2003. So I think the question for Europe is, can it step up to the plate? Does it want to step up to mm -hmm. the plate? And will it put the resources towards yeah. it? Ah, Philippe? And apologies, because yes. I'm going to have to slip out I in know. a couple of minutes to go do some Brexit press. Yes. Ah, so Philippe? I think you know, the, the defense cooperation is an issue that we've touched upon. But uh, obviously, uh, having served myself in the uh, French defense ministry, uh, I think it's a, it's a good idea that we're having this debate. Uh, I don't think the, uh, you know, the words coming out of Washington are particularly uh, useful on this, mm. but I think it's, uh, it's useful to have a debate within Europeans. And France, as a country, has, has, has taken its share uh, in many ways, and it's, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's an overstretched military now with obviously the, the terrorism issue and all this. But Germany has, you know, is, 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 has uh, uh, taken a much bigger role and, and has decided to increase its, its defense budget. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the situation with uh, people you call the refugees, which are called the asylum, asylum seekers, uh, is, is evolving in a, in a good way in a, in, with the Frontex uh, you know, developments. Um, and, then, and then, you know, we need to go back to this idea of the European security and defense mm. policy with, you know, uh, common procurement, uh, uh, you know, battle groups, uh, joint forces, and, you know, and, 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 and I'm afraid, you know, I mean, NATO will, of course, still be there, but, uh, you know, we will have to build, again, this European defense. And, and Matt, you have the last predictive word. I, I think it's still a domestic issue and that is the stagnation and I would mention the same thing about this country um, and we all face these technological revolutions where you have more and more automation that is disrupting job market and unfortunately I mean you know you we can talk about who should be blamed um, for this but for the EU and for national governments they need to solve those problems which are the closest to Europeans' heart, but also it's the same with here in America. If you don't solve these, these basic elements, um, then you're not going to get the trust in government, whether it's at the national or at the, in Europe's case, at the EU level. 
Well, all of you have identified different challenges, but I think certainly uh, from my view, the biggest challenge is going to be prioritizing what comes first. Is it the economy? Is it security? Is it the transatlantic reaction, what's happening in the United States? Or, or is it uh, you know, moving towards a closer union to solve all, all of these challenges, um, potentially concurrently? Um, so I want to open it up to the audience. So please, if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. Uh, there should be mics coming around. And introduce yourself. And please ask a question. And don't give us a lecture, if you could. Uh, sir. Brett Fortnum from Inside U.S. Trade. Um, I, I know that you've all briefly touched upon the role the U.S. plays, but I was, I was in, in the future of Europe. I was wondering if we, uh, we could dive into that a, a little bit more, um, especially given the uncertainty of, um, behind the current administration. Um, you know, in, in, in your projections. So could uh, you speak up just a little sure. bit? Um, in, in your projections, I mean, how can the U.S. either contribute or detract, and how much of an impact do you think um, U.S. policy toward Europe will have on its future in its economic growth, um, and specifically to trade policy with TTIP in flux to be kind? Um, you know, is there a future economic relationship between the EU and U.S. Um, that builds upon the, the current trade flows? Can I just take a quick crack before running out the door? Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I, yes, it is in there. And I think one of the crucial question marks for us is whether the United States becomes or remains an active player in the international trading economy. What happens with the NAFTA uh, renegotiation? And we have one scenario where the United States, NAFTA falls apart. Uh, the United States uh, drops out of the G20 and the G7, basically, in terms of not participating. It's a rather drastic scenario, but <laughs> it's fun to write. Um, and so I think that is the question, uh, because what I'm sensing right now, and my European colleagues may agree or not, is that Europe expects there to be a pause while the new administration gets its act together, gets its people in place. But then they're interested in talking about some of the components of TTIP perhaps going forward without that label. Let's put it that way. And there might be some possibilities there. And Commissioner Malmstrom is supposed to come here in yeah. April, late April, something like that, um, which may even be way too early for that discussion, but she's coming for other reasons. So, but the question is, what does the United States want? And is it going to engage in a mercantilist trade policy? Or is it actually going to stay with the WTO and engage in trade policy on the same basis on which it has for the last 40 years? So, and apologies. Thank you, Fran. And did uh, any of you want to pick up on the economic side, the role of the US, transatlantic trade agreements? I mean, one thing you could, you know, speculate about is if the U.S., you know, tries to take itself out of w, the WTO, you know, then it really forces Europe to think about um, defending the multilateral system. And um, you could actually see, I think, European uh, policymakers stepping up to the plate and it would and taking that lead and it would, you know, I think maybe there'd be a new chapter written about the, the, the EU uh, under those circumstances. Other questions? That may happen audience? in climate as well. Yes. Uh, yes. Looks I likely. Think, I, I yeah. think. Heading this uh, way. 
Ambassador Hall Hall. Well, um, as the British elephant in the room, you can uh, treat my comments with the respect or the contempt that you think they deserve. But uh, I just wanted to pick up on our German friend's comment that the solution might be more Europe because uh, from where I sit, it is that mindset that the solution to all Europe's problems is more Europe is partly what led to Brexit. And um, I also, of course, fully recognize that allowing individual countries just to cherry pick the bits they like and not take the bits they don't like is a recipe for conflict and tension as well. But I would argue that 60 years on, the EU has reached a stage where perhaps a more flexible approach is absolutely essential to keep the EU road on track rather than more Europe. And so I'm interested to know how widely shared that view is that you expressed uh, within, um, not just within your institutions, but more widely across the EU. How many others do you think share that view that the solution is more rather than varied and flexible? Thank you. I think that question was to you. Yeah, just just uh, a few remarks. The first remark is when you when you uh, talk about cherry picking. Frankly speaking, I realized the negotiations David Cameron, your former prime minister, did with the European Commun uh, Commission and our member states in a way that he asked for cherries, we gave him the cherries. He asked for more cherries, and we gave him more. And even then, he said, "Now I have all my cherries, but still." my citizens want to leave. So um, cherry picking doesn't help because you got all the cherries you asked for during the years of your membership and uh, now in this uh, before Brexit uh, debate we had between your government and the European Union. And therefore, I think that's just not fair. Uh, the second thing is um, not always more Europe is the answer. That, that's not my message. But in some areas, definitely yes. And I tried to figure out some of them and see the development, for instance, of the United States, where we are today. Um, you also could see different, uh, yeah, different, 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 different uh, parts of integration and, and uh, during, during the, the founding years of the United States and then the decades afterwards and the different wars within this country uh, until we now have the United States as they are today it was a development and we, we see a similar development I think in the European Union and the third thing is we now have a debate going on in the European Union that we say let's think about where we need more Europe and many politicians in our member states and we have this debate also in Germany and also within my party say yes we have some areas where we need more Europe and in in, in return, we should think about what are those areas where we could take European responsibilities and give it back to the member states. And frankly speaking, until today, I didn't see one concrete political area where people could really tell us, yes, in this area we need less Europe. And, 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 and frankly speaking, as long as this is the situation, um, it, it, it's a nice debate, but then it's a lack of leadership. And, and frankly speaking, one can draw the picture that being a member of the European Union removes sovereignty. I think that was part of the debate we had in, in Great Britain. Frankly speaking, you can also turn the debate in a totally different direction. Take a country like Luxembourg, 300,000 people. That's perhaps 
as many people as live in three skyscrapers in Shanghai. Yeah, they know, they are aware that, of course, they gain a lot of um, self-control and got a lot of influence by being member of the European Union and by being part of this big train and this big ship uh, being around. And, and it's the same uh, in Germany. <coughs> 80 million Germans know that we are a big country, but, but they are aware that most of the problems we have to solve in future, the security issue with Russia uh, in Europe, uh, the migration crisis, the whole mess we have in Africa, in most of the countries on the African con uh, continent, uh, the, the, the big um, uh, problems we face in Middle East, um, even a country like Germany uh, isn't able to solve this issue alone. And therefore, we have so many reasons to convince people to, to, to have areas where we definitely need more Europe. And again, I'm always willing to give back responsibilities to the member states to make Europe more flexible, uh, to have the European institutions not dealing with a lot of things. But please tell me concrete areas, political areas, where we can take away European responsibility without harming the internal market, without harming... Um, yeah, uh, European uh, foreign security policy. Uh, I didn't see any concrete step. Uh, it, it is now a year ago that the uh, Dutch parliament, for instance, uh, the parliament from the Netherlands, uh, passed a resolution where they asked for less Europe. Um, uh, and, and, and on 60 pages, you can read one concrete idea. And, and, and I think as long as this is the debate, it, it's useless debate. And, and so if it's a useless debate, we have two options. We can continue this useless debate, then it will lead to uh, Frexit and Italy exit and German exit or whatever, and to a division of the European Union. Or we can show leadership, and I think the biggest problem in Europe, and that's perhaps the answer to your first question, what is the biggest challenge to Europe, is the lack of leadership we see in, in, in many of the European member states and on the European level. I think that's the biggest threat, and we need more leadership politically. Mm -hmm. And that is also, I think, what was one of the uh, main success stories of Trump in his uh, campaign, that he just showed leadership. And people ask for leadership, and so we have to deliver lead leadership. I would also add, I do think there's also a communications component to all of this. Uh, I think for your average European, uh, it's not always clear what they're getting from the EU. It may be obvious to uh, politicians in the European Parliament or in other parliaments, but uh, there is a, a gap there, I think, between your average, uh, let's say, Greek college graduate who hasn't had a job in six years and then what the European Parliament is doing. So I think. Uh, more uh, efforts to try to communicate how your average Europeans benefit from the European project, be that by not paying roaming fees on your cell phones, for example, is a huge thing. Uh, I think would be a valuable effort. I know that some of those things are already happening, but I just wanted to, to emphasize that. Well, I think a lot of the reasons we end up talking past each other has to do with that specific gap in, in communication. Uh, Philippe and Matt, did you want to pick up on, on any of these points? Um, okay, more questions then. Uh, please. Um, hello, I'm Nana Sajaya from the Voice of America Georgian Service. It was just yesterday when Georgia celebrated its visa-free travel uh, with the European Union, which is, of course, a part of its big uh, Euro-Atlantic integration effort. Uh, one of the scenarios you discussed uh, is increased Russian role. Where, does, um, where do countries like Georgia or Ukraine fall in that equation? And does that take us back to Cold War notion of spheres of the influence? Thank you. Matt, you wrote the scenario. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, the actual scenario takes you in the other direction of an accommodationist Europe. Mm -hmm. So they more or less say to Russia, we won't allow Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, other countries to join the EU. So it's, uh, you know, this is combined with, you know, NATO is also weaker. Um, so there's feeling that um, Europe must negotiate uh, with Russia. It's, it's not one of the, the nicer scenarios in, in, in the book. Does anybody else want to pick up on, on the Russia question? I do have to say that to me that was the most troubling scenario uh, because it does basically de facto establish this permanent gray zone uh, between the EU and Russia <coughs> in that scenario. And I think that's the outcome that all of us should be uh, frankly terrified of and uh, working to try to prevent as much as possible. Um, yeah, but, but, but also, yes? sorry, also this gray zone. You take countries like Georgia or the whole Balkan countries um, where the Russians definitely try to deeply influence political decisions and elections in those countries. Um, does anyone in the room think that um, a disintegrated European Union, um, the single member states would be in a better position to solve this issue? Definitely not. Definitely not. It, it, it's again the next problem. Uh, as long as Russia can play this game of uh, division of, 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 of countries in Europe, um, they, they will continue with this process. And again, that is, that is from my perspective, a very strong argument uh, why we now saw more European security and defense policy, for instance, by deciding that we will now uh, um, um, introduce, um, uh, how do you call it, a kind of um, command center for European uh, military forces. Uh, it's a decision which is made. So we are, we are delivering, and I think we are de facto delivering much more than the people realize, and we should learn to, to sell this and to, to talk about this. I think you made a very good point. Sir, please. Bob Eichert from the Atlantic Council. Um, following up, is the accession process dead? Are there countries that you see over the next five years that are likely to be seriously considered? Yeah, this goes back to, the, to this question, of course, um, of, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like Europe is, you know, throwing open its doors to Georgia, to Ukraine, other countries who still believe in the European ideal. So are we going to see those countries turn into a gray zone nonetheless? Well, I'm not sure what the process is, but I, I, I don't think it's advisable. <laughs> That's yeah. my, 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 my point of view. Uh, even though, I mean, I support uh, what Daniel says about, about the... Europe needs to reconstruct itself. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but needs to, to make use of this year of elections, uh, perhaps to make use of the fact there's a, um, a new kind of uh, administration in this country um, sending mixed messages about the EU. Uh, also the fact that, uh, well, the British lady has left, but uh, the fact that um, uh, you know, Brexit is taking place. It's not the time to welcome new members, and, and certainly not in the next five years. I mean, five years is actually the, the term of a, of a French president, and the, the, uh, four years is, is the term of a, of a German chancellor. Um, and you know we're going to have more elections and all this. And, and honestly, I mean, in the case of France, there's there's a lot of re reforms, economic reforms and social reforms to be conducted. Um, and and the Franco-German partnership needs to be relaunched with new leaders. I mean, or perhaps one one of them will still be there, but uh, at least uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. You tell me. 
but um, you know, it, it, it's time for, for, for changes and to, to incorporate all these, these massive uh, geopolitical uh, changes that we're, we're, we're seeing and not, not to, to you know, make the EU bigger. I mean, for, for one thing, I think the enlargement was, was too dramatic and too, too massive. I mean, that's a personal view, but I think you know, we went too far in this, with this enlargement, so it's not the time to enlarge more. And, and that's one where, uh, place in the polls that the publics don't want enlargement, you know. Well, especially, I mean, in the case of some countries, obviously the enlargement yeah. is, a, yeah, is yeah. a patent uh, failure. I mean, some of them actually criticizing the, the, the EU uh, blatantly. So, uh, you know, we should actually find a way to deal with them. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's been an impediment to the, to the European uh, uh, progress. Yeah, but, but, but it's in dilemma because um, I also agree that on the one hand it was too early to, to, to take on board many of those Central European countries, but on the other hand, imagine we didn't have done this. Today, it would be war. Imagine, imagine uh, the, the three Baltic countries um, entering the European Union on 1st of April 2017. It would be war. So, so I, I agree it was too early and it led to a lot of problems, but on the other hand, we, we, for instance, I was not a member of the European Parliament when we had to vote on the accession of those countries in the European mm. Parliament, but I think I, 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 I did the mistake to vote against if I was a member that time. There was an excess yeah. of optimism that perhaps, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, we live in a different world now. But um, we're running out of time, but if our uh, panelists may have a few moments afterwards to stay and maybe chat uh, with a few of you that still have questions. Um, just as, as, a, as a closing remark, uh, we started talking about the Central European countries, and I think there was a historical moment and decision had to be made, and now we're feeling some of the repercussions and consequences of that perhaps overly optimistic decision. But um, on the other hand, uh, you know, ha flipping the script on some of the negative attitudes in that specific region now I think is really important because where would those countries, where would Hungary be, where would Poland be if there were not NATO member states and EU member states at this point? Uh, maybe they would have been the subject of increased Russian aggression in the same way as the Ukraine has been. We don't know, but I think highlighting the, the security accomplishments and the economic accomplishments from, it, from which these specific countries continue to benefit from so immensely is going to be important in the years to come. Uh, so thank you very much for this really interesting discussion. Matt, uh, the, the sweat of your labor contained this report, I think is truly fascinating. And Fran as well, the thinker in absentia. So if you could all join me in thanking our panelists uh, for this interesting conversation. Thank you.